If you got your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We are flying through this book. We're already in chapter 8. But today we're only going to cover one verse. I wanted to cover the whole chapter, but that's not going to happen today. Uh, we, we are going to help you understand some things that are going to open your eyes to the beauty of the Christ. Eye-popping truths that are so rich for your life. And I'm hoping today that as you study the word of the Lord with us, you will see only Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, in all of his splendor. Now, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Whatever promise God made, it is, a, it is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. And to understand that is to realize the sufficiency and supremacy of the Christ. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to this Jewish audience. To help them understand that, that there's one who is supreme, there is one who is sufficient, and it's only Jesus Christ. Because with Jesus comes everything that's better. There is a better covenant. There is a better hope. There is a better promise. There is a better priesthood. Everything about Jesus is better. Not that the old covenant was bad, but this Jesus gives everything new light, new life. And with Jesus comes the better covenant because he is the fulfillment of all of the promises. All of the, the rituals in the old covenant, all the symbols, all the ceremonies are all fulfilled in the arrival of the Messiah. And so somehow they, they need to understand that Jesus is that Messiah and how it is he fulfilled everything. Because in Judaism, everything's centered around the priesthood. We've told you that over the last several weeks. And so the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 is all about the priesthood, all about the new covenant, everything about what they venerated, everything about what they revered. You see, if I'm a Jew, I lived in reverence to the priesthood. Because there's no one higher than the priest than God himself. And if I'm a Jew, I, I live in anticipation of what God is going to do in my life through the priesthood. I mean, after all, that's how I'm able to have my sins covered. My priest is going to go in and, and offer a sacrifice for my sins. And on the day of the atonement, he would go into the, to the Holy of Holies and with fear and trepidation and go in and offer a sacrifice, sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat for the sins of a nation. But I know that the only bridge between me and God was this priest. And that was my hope. But that priest could never give me full access to the presence of the living God. That's why there was a veil that kept me out. That's why he was the only one who could go in to that holy place and offer sacrifices. But I needed to have my sins dealt with. And the only way I could do that is for my priest to offer up sacrifices. And I would go in and come out and go in and come out and go in. And sometimes I'd be going in more than i come out because I have to keep offering sacrifices because I sin so much. 
And so the writer of Hebrews says, there is one who has come. He is the Messiah who is of a priesthood of a different order. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah because this priest is a king. So all of chapter 7 was about Melchizedek and how it is this Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek as prophesied in Psalm 110, verse number 4, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And every Jew would know, Psalm 110, verse number 4, that the Son, the Messiah, would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priesthood was only a temporary priesthood. It was only going to last for a while. But the priest that would come in the order of Melchizedek would be an eternal priesthood. And so when you come to chapter Eight. Verse number one, he sums everything up by saying this. Now the main point, now the chief point, now the apex of everything, this is it. Get this. This is the main point. In what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That one verse we could camp out on for weeks just because of all the truth that's there. And this morning I want to begin to scratch the surface in unveiling to you some of the great truths that are only in verse number one that will hopefully bring the scriptures together to, for you from Genesis to Revelation in one verse to help you understand the beauty of, of the inspired word of God and how God puts everything together in such a unique and awesome way that we are able to grasp it and realize our God is so great. For we have such, such a high priest. We have the most magnificent priest. So this morning, I'm going to cover point number one and point number two with you. Point number one is this, the magnificent extent of the ministry of Christ and the majestic exaltation of his ministry by God. First of all, the excellent ministry, the excellent or the magnificent extent, excuse me, of the ministry of Christ. you got to go back to chapter 7, verse number 25, where he says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The magnificent extent of the ministry of Christ revolves around his salvation, his separation, his sacrifice, and our security. The extent of his ministry is so magnificent. It's so overwhelming. First of all, because of his salvation. He is able. Not only is he willing, he is able. Remember, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was willing. They just were not able to save you forever, to save you to the uttermost, to save you completely. But this Messiah is able to do that. 
And this is his salvation. And he says he's able to save forever those who, who draw near to God, those who come to him, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And so this writer is saying, look, whoever calls upon his name, whoever draws near to him, whoever comes to him, he's able to save you completely to the uttermost. So whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you have been doing, listen, the old covenant now is obsolete. So whatever you have done in the past to somehow think that you're gaining access into the presence of God or somehow gaining God's favor, don't worry about that. You can't do that because he is able to save you to the uttermost completely. Why? Because of his great sacrifice and great separation. He says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is not only holy on the outside, he's holy on the inside. He is without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says there is no deceit found in him. 1 John 3.5 says he has no sin in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He is completely separate from any sin because he is holy, holy, holy. He is unblemished. He is undefiled. He is innocent. He is holy. And therefore, he and he only can save you to the uttermost. This is that magnificent ministry. The extent of that ministry saves you completely and then he talks about the great sacrifice who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people because he did once for all. This he did once for all. Listen, every other priest had to offer up sacrifices for their own sins because they were sinners. But this one, mm -mm, he's innocent, undefiled, without blemish. And they had to do it daily. This priest, once. Just once, because of who he was and what he did, he's able to save you completely. And then he says this, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. This is your security because it's forever. It's not for a while. And so the magnificent extent of the ministry of Christ is an unending, unlimited, unparalleled ministry. And so the writer of Hebrews draws it to a conclusion, and he says, now listen to this. Here's the main point. Here is the majestic excellence of that ministry. That in Jesus... Everything comes together. This is the main point, he says. And he says it this way. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of God. He's taken his seat. So if I'm a Jew and I'm listening to this, I'm saying, what do you mean a seat? He, sit, he sits down. No high priest ever sat down. There's not one seat in the tabernacle or the temple. There is the mercy seat, 
but the high priest couldn't sit on the mercy seat. That's blasphemous. So there's no place for the high priest to sit down. Why is that? Because the sacrifices were an ending. They were never going to come to an end. They had to offer them daily. There was a continual offering of sacrifices day after day after day for the sins of, of people who would come and, and offer sacrifices to be cleansed from their sin, that they may be right with God. It was an unending ministry. That's why the priesthood was so valued to the Jews. I need to be right with my God. How do I get there? It's through the priesthood. So I would go and offer sacrifices daily, many times throughout the day because of my sins. And the, high, and the uh, writer of Hebrews says, our high priest is so great that he is actually seated at the right hand of God. Now, over in Hebrews chapter 10, it says this in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. He wants to reiterate it. Which can never take away sins. He's trying to draw a parallel. You know, you got to remember that when the priest went in, he offered sacrifices, but they couldn't take away your sins. But he, the Messiah, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of of God. Wow. He sat down at the right hand of God. This high priest is so great, he is a, able to sit down at the right hand of God. Now listen, every Jew would know Psalm 110, verse number one. Turn back with me if you would to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse number one, says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse number 1, is introducing them once again to their Messiah. Remember Psalm 110, Messianic Psalm, quoted more times in the New Testament than any other psalm because the Jewish people need to understand who the Messiah is. Now, Psalm 110, verse number one, is so crucial. It is so important that at the end of the ministry of Christ, during Passion Week, on Thursday, the last day he was on the Temple Mount, having asked, answered all kinds of questions that were asked him by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by all the religious leaders, they would ask him question after question after question, and he answered them all. And then finally, he's going to ask them a question. And it's the last question Jesus ever asks, because it's the only question that matters. Only question. And so, in the book of Matthew, verse number 41 after all the questions have been asked, and Jesus is concluding his earthly ministry, his speaking to the religious establishment, having answered all their questions, has only one question to ask them. 
And this is the only question that matters. Here it goes. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Verse 41 of Matthew 22. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This is life's ultimate question. Because if Jesus is going to conclude his earthly ministry and he has to ask a question of the religious establishment, what's he going to ask them? He's going to ask him this question. He's going to be very clear. You've heard about the Messiah. Let me ask you a question. Whose son is he? The text says, they said to him, the son of David. Now, you've got to picture the scene, and I wasn't there. But you can picture the scene. They've asked Jesus all these questions, right? And he's answered them all. And they think they're so smart. They think they're so intelligent. They're so far above Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth. So Jesus says, can, can I ask you guys a question? Sure, ask us. The Messiah. Whose son is he? And immediately they would respond, the son of David. Ha <laughs> ha, we got you. And they'd be that proverbial high five. Yeah, good job. Baby. All right, good job, fellas. All right, yeah, 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 we got it. Son of David, we got the answers to your questions, Jesus. Thinking so highly of themselves. So Jesus is going to take them to the Old Testament. He's going to take them back. <laughs> he takes them back to the Messianic Psalm that every Jew knows. And every Jew standing there in front of him would know Psalm 110, verse number 1. So he says this. Then how does David in the spirit, in other words, Psalm 110, written by David under the divine inspiration of God. So David in the spirit said this. Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? How does David in the spirit call his son Lord, they quote Psalm 110, verse number one. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how then is he his son? How can David call his son Lord? Because no king would ever call his son Lord. But David the king, before the son was born, called him Lord. This is the ultimate question. Because the ultimate question always centers around what? Who is Jesus? That's all that matters. When you're talking to somebody, nothing else matters. You can talk about this, you can talk about that, you can talk about politics, you can talk about religion, you can talk about baseball, you can talk about all kinds of debating questions. They don't mean anything. The only question that matters is who is Jesus? So if you want to do an evangelistic mission, just go door to door and say, hey, let me ask you a question, who is Jesus? Because that's all that matters. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. Who am I? Who son is the Messiah? Son of David, right. And they all knew that. Very clearly presented in the Old Testament. And so he says, you know that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. But do you also know that Messiah is not just a descendant of David, but he is divine. That's why in Revelation 22, verse number 16, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, bright and morning star, and the root and the offspring of David. I am the source of David's life and line, and I am the son of David's life and line. I'm both. He is the divine God of the universe. The Bible says in Matthew 22, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question? Because that's the only question that matters, right? Who is the Messiah? Who is Jesus? You see, Jesus had already presented his messianic credentials. He spent three years proving that he was the Messiah by healing everybody that came to him, by raising the dead, he had fulfilled everything that was prophesied of him in the Old Testament, except for his impending death and resurrection, which was about to happen. But he wanted them to come face to face with the identity and the reality of who he was as he stood before them. And they wouldn't even begin to acknowledge him as son of God. They had a hard time with the fact that he was the son of David because he was. They knew he was the son of David. Why? All they had to do was go down to, to the temple and check the genealogical records. That's it. And that's why there was never an indictment made against him about the fact that he wasn't the son of David. Because he was. Through Mary and through Joseph. And so, he asked that all-important question. Oh, by the way, this question was asked to confound the religious establishment. Peter asked the same question on the day of Pentecost. That he might convict all those around that Jesus was a divine Messiah. It was also quoted in Hebrews 1, verse number 13, to prove and to confirm that Jesus was superior to all the angels. So it's quoted over and over again. Sit at my right hand. Right hand. The hand of strength. The place of strength. The place of honor. But all that in Psalm 110 goes back even further. I told you we're going to take you from Genesis to Revelation. We've already quoted Je Revelation 22, verse number 16. Last chapter in the Bible, 16th verse. We've already taken you to the Gospels. We're in Hebrews. We've already been to Psalm 110. I'm going to take you all the way back to the book of Genesis. Because sitting at the right hand of God has its roots, not just in Psalm 110, 
in the book of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. It's going to get even better. It's going to get even richer. God had taken Jacob and wrestled with him. Remember that? The wrestling of Jacob with the angel of the Lord. And he says in verse number um, 11, I'm sorry, 10, of verse number 35, chapter, chapter 35, verse number 10, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Very important. Why? Because Jacob means supplanter, right? Jacob means supplanter. He would supplant the firstborn Esau and be in the line of the Messiah. He was the supplanter. And the Lord says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel, which means may God strive for you. Jacob had spent his whole life striving against God, and now he says, I'm going to change your name so I can now strive for you. And that's why there was this great wrestling match between the Lord God of Israel and Jacob. And it lasted all night. Well, why would it last all night? Why would it last for hours? Why would God even wrestle with somebody for hours? Because he had to break Jacob. He had to break his spirit because Jacob was so determined to wrestle through life. He was so determined to win life on his own. He was so determined to be in charge. And God would let him wrestle and wrestle and wrestle until he broke his hip. And Jacob would limp for the rest of his life as a reminder that he was completely dependent upon God to strive for him. So God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And I thought about that, and I thought, how many times do we strive with God? Because we want to supplant his rule in our lives. We want to be in control of our lives. We want to make all the decisions in our lives. We want to do what we do. And we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want to be guiding us through life. We want to do what we do. And so we, in essence, are living the life of Jacob. We want to supplant God's authority in our lives. Till one day God has to break us. So we learn to depend solely upon him and lean upon him and let him strive for us. The life of the nation of Israel listen carefully, is all about learning through all these years, through 4,000 years of history, learning to depend upon God so he would strive for them. That's the life of the nation of Israel. And it will continue to the King Messiah comes again. And he most surely will. So Jacob now and his beautiful wife Rachel are journeying from Bethel to a place called Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth in verse 16, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for now you have another son. Remember, remember Rachel prayed for another son? Just one more son. 
She had Joseph, but she wanted one more son. And God would grant her her desire. But he would grant her desire only because it was a part of his purpose and plan ultimately. And so it says these words. It came about as her soul was departing for she died that she named him Benoni. But his father called him Ben-Hamin or Benjamin. She's dying. And as she dies, she's full of sorrow. I want to name him Benoni because he is the son of my sorrow. And Jacob, who is now Israel, says, no, 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 no. We're not going to name him son of your sorrow. We're going to name him son, listen, of my right hand. The son of my strength. Because in Benjamin, there was a type of Christ. Now read on. And it says, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is what? Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over a grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. He made a tower. He placed her. He, he buried her in a place called Bethlehem. Why? Because in Bethlehem will be the birth of the one who is the son of my right hand. Benjamin became a type of the Messiah. If you go back further to the book of Micah, Micah 4, verse number 8, as for you, tower of the flock. What is that? Migdal Adair. Same phrase used in Genesis 35, where there was a tower of the flock built there in Bethlehem. And now the Messiah says to the prophet Micah, as for you, tower of the flock, Migdal Adair, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. He is prophesying the fact the Messiah will come to Bethlehem. How do we know that? Matthew 5, verse number 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The tower of the flock, Migdal Adair, a tower that was built so that the shepherd would be able to look over the field and see all of his sheep. Underneath the tower would be the birthing place of the lambs. Because the lambs that were birthed and raised for slaughter in Jerusalem were born and raised in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah would come. Because he'd be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And all those lambs that were born, offering up a sacrifice over and over and over again, were just a foretaste of what was going to come, a shadow of what was ultimately going to come through the ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord, who would come and sacrifice his life for your sins and for mine. He is the one who was prophesied when the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now the right of Hebrews picks all that up because the right of Hebrews is Jewish. He picks it all up from Genesis 
all up from Micah, all up from Isaiah, all up from what Jesus said when he asked the final question, who is the son of David? He says, oh, we have such a high priest, such a high priest, Hebrews chapter 8, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have such a high priest because I want to draw all this together for you. He is sitting down at the right hand of God, a prophecy of Psalm 110. He would fulfill uh, further in in, uh, Hebrews 10, elaborate more upon this. But it takes you back to prophecy. It takes you back to the book of Genesis. It ties everything together. Because when Jesus would be sacrificed, what would he say? It is finished. It's done. Redemption has been accomplished. When he hung on the cross on that day, on Great Friday, he hung there. And before he died, he said, it is finished. Because he had borne in his body the sins of the world. And he had paid the penalty for your sin and mine. And then it was all over after three hours of agony. He said, it is done. It is finished. It is complete. Salvation now was complete because of my redemption, because of the price that I paid for your sins, that you might experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Just a beautiful picture. But listen, this is not even the best part yet, because it gets even better, because he says, He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Now, remember the Sanhedrin? The the body of 70 individuals who were the ruling body in Israel, okay? So like our our Supreme Court justices, we have nine. Hopefully, we'll we'll keep it at nine. But we have nine. But there were 70 rulers, the Sanhedrin. Now, listen carefully. On either side of the Sanhedrin, one on the right, one on the left, or in your case, the right and the left, right, sat two scribes. And whenever the Sanhedrin made a judgment, if there was an acquittal, the scribe on the right would write the acquittal. But if he was judged... And condemned, the scribe on the left hand would write the judgment and the condemnation. Every Jew knows that. So when the Messiah's prophet decided to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is sitting there because he is your defense attorney. He is the one who has freed you from your sins. He is the one who set you free. That's why it's the right hand and not the left hand. That's why the right hand is the arm of my strength and the left hand is not because it is the arm of acquittal. It's the arm of freedom. It's the arm that rules and sets you free. Isn't that great? (laughs) But it gets better. It gets even better than that. Let's go back to Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Wait till you see this. 
Ready for this? Church of Laodicea, an apostate church. Nobody in the church was saved. They were a church. They had a gathering of people, but nobody was saved. And yet the Lord stands at the door and knocks at the door of the church and knocks. If there's anyone in there, any individual in there who opens the door, I will come into you and I will dine with you. I will have a supper with you. And the word used there is the, is the last meal of the day which in Jewish custom is, is, the, is the meal of loving, fellowship, and communion. If anybody in the church of Laodicea would open the door that I might come into that church, just one person would open the door and I would come into their life individually, I will dine with them. I will have supper with them. Same word used of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, where we sit down with our our great God and Savior Jesus Christ and experience the, the, the saving grace afforded us by the Lamb of God. And then he says this, Revelation 3, verse number 21. He overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. How big a throne is this? He who overcomes, 1 John 5, 3 and 4, details the overcomer, who by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ obeys the commands of God. That is the victorious warrior, the overcomer. He overcomes. That is, he who believes in the Son of God, he who understands the ultimate question, whose son is he? The identity of the Messiah. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is, a, is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and gives their life to him, that person is the warrior, the victorious warrior, the overcomer. And that overcomer, I will grant to him that he might sit on the exact same throne that I myself am sitting on as my Father granted me the opportunity to sit at his right hand. Imagine that. So next time you wonder, Peggy, when Larry went to glory, when Kristen went to glory, where'd they go? To the right hand of God the Father. <laughs> they're crawling up on the throne with Jesus. That's where they're at. Because we're joint heirs with Christ, are we not? We are one with him. And he grants us the wonderful privilege to sit on his throne as his father granted him the beautiful privilege to sit on his throne. Why? Because we've been set free. We're on the right hand of the majesty on high. We have been set free from our sin. We now have been totally cleansed. We now can sit on that place because that's the place of divine acquittal. See that? Do you think that there's not enough in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 8, verse number 1, to keep us going for weeks on end? Because the writer is totaling everything together. This high priest, we have such a high priest. Why? Because he, he, he has sat down. He's done. 
The work is complete. There's, there's no more sacrifice to be offered. Everything that you've done, every symbol, every ceremony, every ritual, put it away. Run from it. It's done. They're all shadows of the Messiah. He's here. He came. He died. He rose again. The sacrifice is complete. Oh, we have such a high priest. It's done. And now he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which takes him all the way back to Genesis 35, takes him all the way back to Psalm 110, takes him all the way back to the book of Micah to help them understand that this Jesus is a divine fulfillment of prophecy. And John the Apostle would pick up on that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, would say, hey, you know what? Not only does he sit at the right hand of God the Father, the right hand of the majesty on high, guess what? When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and give your life to him, when you die, you will go and sit on the same throne where our God is sitting because you have been set free from all your sin. That is just so, mm, I just can't, I just can't, I was so excited on Monday when I finished this thinking, man, I can't wait to preach. I can't wait to share. This is so rich, so deep. And if you're here today, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to be able to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. You need to be able to sit there as a free man, set free from your sin. But you can't. You can't if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not an overcomer, then at the end, you'll be separated from Christ forever in a place called hell. And you'll never, ever have a chance to repent. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, you got to come. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of provocation in the wilderness. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today. What a great day. What a beautiful verse. They're all great, Lord. You, they're your words. But there are days when we study them and we think, oh, my word, this is absolutely unbelievable that we have such, such a high priest. One who, as the writer of Hebrews has already said, who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses, who can come alongside and anchor us in the presence of his Father forever. If there's one here today who has yet to give their life to you, may this be that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.